I knew my dad to be a pretty good person, a person of faith. Um, and I had been taught to believe that people who were gay were like going to hell. Right. And so mm. I, that caused me to do that kind of internal work. And while I did, I couldn't work it out theologically to say, I don't believe that's true. Right. I knew it wasn't true. Right. Like in my sure. heart, I knew it wasn't true. Even though I couldn't say, well, this is why the Bible's wrong. I was like, that just doesn't feel right. I have sure. to figure out what, the, why, Right. And there wasn't like, this is before Google. Right. So I couldn't like just Google this <laughs> stuff. <laughs> What's up, beautiful people? Happy February and happy Black History Month. I'm your host of the Refuge Pod, Josh Lopez Reyes. And I'm super excited today because we have an esteemed guest, the Reverend Dr. Christopher Carter. His remarkable commitment to spirituality, solidarity, and social justice has woven a unique narrative that embraces Black womanist, and environmental ethics into his vocation as a pastor, professor, and scholar. So get ready to be inspired as you listen to Dr. Carter's vocational journey and some snippets from his groundbreaking book, The Spirit of Soul Food. And make sure to mark your calendars for the first of the month wherever you consume your podcasts as we have a very exciting lineup of guests coming in the months ahead. So without further ado, let's dive in as we listen to the amazing Reverend Dr. Carter. So excited for a very special guest, the Reverend Dr. Christopher Carter being on the Refuge Pods. Thank you so much for being here today. Yeah, thank you for having me. Excited to be here. Thank you. Thank you. Well, just, uh, you know, we go back many years and uh, it's been awesome to see how life kind of brought us in uh, similar circles, which is, you know, that's how life is. But uh, for our audience, would you please introduce yourself a little bit more of kind of who you are and what you're up to in, in this world? Yeah. And I would say just to elaborate on the full circle part, like, you know, that's how life is to an extent for like scholars of religion of color. Mm. <laughs> like if you are 100%. a scholar of religion and you're a person of color, you probably are going to somehow connect with the form for theological exploration. <laughs> and, and that is pretty much it. That's how we all, it's, I mean, it's, I, it's, it's, the truth. It's how we all know each other, you know, either through right. there or through HTI, you know, That's and right. I work with both and I'm not Hispanic, but the, I also work with them because, um, you know, in terms of my just methodological approach involves mm. a lot of decolonial thinkers who happen to be Latinx because that's where some of the best decolonial thinking has come from. So, so anyway, as a way to just kind of add some context to this, my name, as you said, um, is Reverend Dr. Christopher Carter. Uh, I am an associate professor of theology, ecology, and race at Methodist Theological School in Ohio. I am the lead pastor of the Loft uh, community at West William Methodist Church. Um, and I do some other consulting work, anti-racism training. Uh, basically, I have too many jobs. Uh, <laughs> and that's kind of how things go. I'm, I'm partnered. I have a, a spouse and a son. Um, that's the other thing that takes up most of my time. So, yeah, I'm just, um, you know, living that good life, man. Living that good life, staying, staying busy. That's right. That's right. Well, thank you. Thank you for that brief introduction. And I think it goes hand in hand, like you said, right? Being religious scholars and, and, and faith leaders, uh, you know, Many jobs is is part of the I think uh, <laughs> job title of that, but you know really excited to dive in more and you know again um, you know especially to talk about uh, you know some of your research and uh, you know also to talk about uh, the anti racism work right that you 
alluded to, uh, but you know, uh, as the this project in podcasts uh, really likes to dive into that that inner journey, right? That kind of journey that whether we're in the Christian tradition or other spiritualities, uh, you know, kind of your own personal story and how it connects to the greater uh, good and the greater world outside of us. Uh, but that said, would you share a little bit about your spiritual tradition and, you know, uh, how it's shaped your life and worldview and, and journey? Yeah, so I grew up um, with, I would say, like, you know, um, middle, like, not so much conservative um, Christian parents, but definitely not, like, liberal. You know, they were kind of right in that middle ground of, uh, you know, what I would say is they were black Christians who were very much aware of the reality of racism. So they weren't just going to practice mm. a Christianity that was going to reinforce racism. At the same right. time, they were more, they were okay reinforcing or practicing Christianity that did reinforce patriarchy and, you know, uh, queer phobia. <laughs> so, <laughs> and so it's not like we yeah. were super radical when I was growing up. And again, I'm, in my forties, so I'm talking about growing up in the eighties. So just to add some mm. context to this, like I'm, you know, right. this is a little bit aging myself a bit, but, um, I, for me, I think when I think about my spiritual journey, I always talk about my grandparents and the ways in which they, my mom's parents, particularly, um, how their spirituality and spiritual journey really shaped me. Um, you know, my grandfather, um, was a migrant worker, um, worked in the fields mm -hmm. and worked in the factories. My grandmother was a stay-at-home mom, but took care of basically her kids and neighborhood kids. But there were people who consistently went to church. You know, my grandpa was very, very involved in the church from a leadership perspective, from a music perspective. And he always had and cultivated an attitude of gratefulness, you know? Mm -hmm. And like he grew up in the Jim Crow South and some of his experiences, you know, that I've written about and talked about um, sound like if you've ever read Booker T. Washington's Up From Slavery, like it just literally sounds like post-emancipation mm. America, even in the 1940s and 50s. Um, and, and I think their commitment to um, just go, I remember going to church on Sunday, Josh, and like they would like, you know, we had this thing called Joys and Concerns. And, mm. and even if they had like a bad, week which some days were bad some weeks were bad because just life right. you know the black folks right and this is in sure. the midwest in michigan and you're dealing with the realities of racism like you would hear people say things like um you know i'm grateful that god like woke me up this morning like mm. i'm in my like right mind and that mm. god uh, allowed me to be here today and gave me like the uh strength you know to to be in worship today and, and like you hear it and you know, they like this was coming from a real place. This wasn't like a pretend kind of spirituality. Like they mm. were grateful that God had allowed them the privilege of life for that day. And I mm. think that really stayed with me. And I think, you know, when I th my spiritual journey is really rooted in a kind of gratefulness and a compassion for others um, and, and kind of this pursuit of, of um, justice so that folks can that so that we can actually live our best lives rather than kind of having to have that kind of struggle that my family grew up with. Um, and so, yeah, I think my spiritual journey is, is, is really comes from them and, and trying to l live into that, um, the spirituality of, of, of being just grateful for what God has continued to give me the wisdom to be able to do in my life. Yeah. I love that. Thank you for, for sharing. And I think it's, uh, 
you know, really, uh, when I'm listening to you share about that, you know, it really resonates. And I think kind of going back to uh, communities of color, right? Uh, BIPOC uh, communities, I think oftentimes um, we have this collective, uh, you know, whereas, you know, in Western culture, right, it's very individualistic, you know, I think our spiritualities oftentimes come from our, our ancestors, right? Our family, our people. And I appreciate you, you know, bringing them into this space. And I, I think it's so uh, powerful, you know, the, what you're talking about is this spirit of gratitude, right? Uh, that, you know, I definitely have seen in my own ancestors too, right? Where it's like, you're an immigrant family, you know, you're underemployed and under, but there's still this, you know, hustle, but also gratitude, right? For being um, alive, like you said. And so really resonate with that and appreciate you uh, sharing that. Um, and want to ask if, if there's been, you know, and it could be multiple uh, experiences or pivots, right, in your own spiritual journey. But was there ever anything where it was like, you know, I had a light bulb moment or, you know, uh, pun intended, come to Jesus moment uh, or anything, you know, uh, as you know, you've been around, you mentioned for some 40 years or so. Yeah, we'll <laughs> just say that. I mean, you know. Uh, I, I I will say I always could look younger until I had Isaiah. I got a four year old son. And like, <laughs> that that brought out all the gray hair. Like I had no gray hair, and then he was born in like literally two weeks. It was just like on my face. But, um, <laughs> but no, I uh, there's a, there's a few pivotal moments I think are worth um, lifting up. Um, hmm. I, I would say as a general in a general sense, you know, I loved theology, and I could not have articulated that as a kid. But I remember like I as a junior high um like kid loved like the bible like i wasn't like the i want people who say people say oh i love the bible and what they really usually mean is i love my interpretation of the bible like i loved reading the bible being in a conversation with people about what it means and recognizing that it had multiple meanings to the extent that when i was in eighth grade from the time i was in eighth grade till i graduated high school i was in the adult sunday school class in my church like because i was just interested in it and they let me be in there and, and that was awesome um and and i think they're they're kind of nurturing that curiosity was a really powerful thing it, they didn't make mm. me feel like out of place um in that space mm. um i think the other thing that happened uh was my mom and my stepdad who is like my father he's a person who raised me like he's the person who i called dad um like they got divorced when i was a senior in high school because uh, my dad came out as gay and you know this this would have been the early 90s and um or i guess that was mid 90s i should say and you know this is the end of the AIDS crisis but still a lot of um queer hate in the black community mm. uh and you know i knew my dad to be a pretty good person a person of faith um and i had been taught to believe that people who were gay were like going to hell right and so mm. i that caused me to do that kind of internal work. And while I did, I couldn't work it out theologically to say, I don't believe that's true. Right. I knew it wasn't true. Right. Like it, in my sure. heart, I knew it wasn't true. Even though I couldn't say, well, this is why the Bible's wrong. I was like, that just doesn't feel right. I have sure. to figure out what, the, why. Right. And there wasn't like, this is before Google. Right. So I couldn't like just Google <laughs> this stuff. <laughs> I, I grew up in the era of actual home landlines, pre-Google, <laughs> go to the library and look stuff up. So, I mean, this is a generational thing. So I just yeah. was like, I'll just, I'll, I'll learn eventually, but I knew mm. this was wrong. And so I think what that allowed me to do and why that was pivotal for my spirituality 
is it it rec- for me it pushed me beyond the limits of like my own particular tradition you know so i wasn't mm. i knew i didn't have to be stuck in this well this is what my church or my pastor says and this is what i have to believe i would say well this is what they say but this is inconsistent with the other beliefs we have about loving all people loving our neighbor as mm. ourselves that if we that we believe that god is a god that does is love and loves all people and is and is just and the fact that they would say my father would be punished for just being who he is um seemed unjust right and so right. that for me was one of the impetus to like continue to study religion in undergrad and um hmm. and in grad school i would say the last transformative thing um that really has continued to shape my theology uh was when i was doing my phd it's, it ties into what we we're talking about earlier about like decolonial thinking, you know, the crazy thing about being a, uh, and maybe you can even, I'm sure you resonate with this, but being a person of color and getting a degree in uh, like a graduate degree is Mm -hmm. this constant exercise in having to not allow people to, to internalize dehumanization Mm because everything you are exposed to basically says that your people are not really smart and that, and, and you're, and you're here because you're not like them. (laughs) <laughs> right, so right. Like, like you're here at the school because you're not one of those blacks mm. you're one of these blacks right and right. so i had begun to internalize so much of this narrative of anti-black hate uh whether it be intellectually yeah. because we don't study that many black scholars or african history um or that we prioritize scholars and writers and activists who but they don't acknowledge their implicit racism what they write you know unless you have the eye to see what they're saying is racist you just believe it to be true and i remember reading um and i knew something didn't feel right in me because i felt like i was writing and thinking in ways that was overly critical in my community that wasn't giving them credit for what they had done but i couldn't really articulate it and so i was really going Mm -hmm. through a season of my life where i didn't feel connected to um what it meant for me to be black quite honestly in a very real way in this white institution while I'm in grad school. And I read mm-hmm. France Fanon's Wretched of the Earth. And mm-hmm. I'm telling you, man, like he is, I think it's, it's his chapter on violence. It's maybe on page 10. Cause mm-hmm. I'm remembering how I was when I read it. And he talks about how the bourgeoisie tries to basically teach the colonized intellectual to implant it within them the ways of thinking of europe and to put sentinels he says sentinels on guard in the back of their consciousness that will defend that true from any other truth you might learn and Hmm. it was like a light bulb moment i was like oh this is what's happening to me like Hmm. they they have they are trying to make me a colonized intellectual so i go back to my community and essentially try to recreate a society that upholds some degree of colonial framework as a way of of transformation rather than looking at um coloniality right colonialism as a as Mm. a big part of the problem um and man i'm telling you it it changed everything like i mean i i created a decolonial method in my book based off that experience because i was like oh i I couldn't i couldn't articulate what was happening right but i knew something inside me was just wrestling with not feeling like i was myself you know yeah and so and so yeah for my from a spirituality perspective, those moments really helped give me the language to articulate what I was feeling. And then I could connect that mm. to my understanding of God as a God of love and compassion, which has always been there. Like that's mm-hmm. always, I've always felt like that. It has given me the tools to be more integrated in my faith. 
Yeah, no, thank you so much for sharing those experiences. And uh, yeah, that's that's so fascinating. You know, um, you know, we've known each other for a while and I've heard you speak in other engagements. And but I've I've also learned some things, you know, that uh, from your story uh, just in, in these responses. So I really appreciate you, you know, sharing those experiences. And again, the, the purpose behind, you know, this podcast is because we all have different spiritual journeys, right? And we all have different struggles and we all, you know, are trying to put our faith into action into the world. Uh, but uh, it's just really, you know, fascinating to hear people's experiences and journeys. Uh, and and I, I resonate with that too, that, that last part that you mentioned, you know, in terms of, you know, um, it was, it was tough, you know, as being a first generation, you know, college graduate, right. And also studied religion and, and, and I was in a, like a mostly immigrant Spanish speaking, very conservative, uh, church context at the time. And, you know, it was very colonial, right. Uh, actually it was kind of going after this, like Pentecostal charismatic, uh, prosperity gospel, um, you know, and we're like in this mostly immigrant, you know, very, very much uh, under-resourced community. And there was just things that didn't vibe or, you know, click or also to the LGBTQ, you know, inclusion, right? Like there's a lot of things that didn't click. And, um, you know, I think it's really interesting you sharing that experience of kind of uh, decolonizing, right? Um, instead of <laughs> repeating the oppression, right? Or, uh, and, and so it, like, how was that experience, you know, and, and maybe backing up a little bit, like you mentioned you studied uh, religion in undergrad. I know oftentimes they kind of prep you for grad school, right? But what made you choose, you know, like, because for a lot of us, we're the first, like you said, right, people to, um, you know, <laughs> either graduate college or even pursue graduate degrees. Um, like what what led you to, you know, seminary and, you know, to pursue this as as your vocation? Yeah, so you know, as United Methodist, you have to be, you have to have master divinity to get ordained. And right. I, at this point I had been Methodist. My mom, we had switched from Baptist to Methodist when I was in like elementary school. And, okay. and, and it fit for us because we liked the structure. We didn't like the kind of churches where like the pastor had total autonomous power that made us uncomfortable. Um, and, right. and I grew up loving Wesley. I mean, the whole notion of sanctification, um, to mm. me has been beyond powerful, but I'm, I'm also a virtue ethicist. And so this is a way of me saying, I talk a lot about practices that allow us to uh, become excellent at a particular kind of skill. Mm. And so sanctification is in line with my whole way of, of thinking. And I don't know if it's being Wesleyan basically made me a virtue ethicist or being a virtue ethicist is maybe more Wesleyan. I don't know. Those things kind of <laughs> complement each other, but, but, um, I did not actually, so I minored in religion in undergrad, okay. uh, because I was like, I didn't know, man. I was like, I, I knew God was like, Oh, I felt called, but right. I was like, you know, may, let me just check it. Maybe make sure. So I, I majored in business administration. I minored okay. in religion because oh, yeah, yeah, I was, yeah. I was nervous, man. Like I'm the first person to go to college in my family. As you said, first person to get a degree. And yeah. I wasn't trying to like, you know, I was going to college to get a job and exactly. I wasn't sure that being a pastor was the kind of job that was going to allow me to avoid being poor. And I grew up poor and I did not want to be poor anymore. I was like, I don't want, I, don't, I was just like, I don't want to be poor. And if I, you know, I have to figure out a way to avoid it. And so, um, and so, uh, so that's why I studied that. And I didn't, 
I went to a, a, a definitely a conservative undergrad um, and the religion courses were helpful in as much as um, I learned a reformed way of thinking. I learned how to appreciate what their theology was. But I, at this point I had lived enough life because I didn't go to undergrad right away. I was like 26 when I graduated. Mm-hmm. Um, so I wasn't the kind of person who was in the classroom. I have a professor say, this is what it is. And me just right. believe him. Cause I'm like, nah, man, I, I've lived life, you know, like I know, right. I know there's other, um, I know there's things you're leaving out and these other little kids, you know, that don't know anything. They just went straight from their gated communities to this private school. They mm. don't know any better. I mm. know better. <laughs> so, right, right. so, uh, I ended up at Claremont, uh, Claremont school of theology because, um, of financial aid, you know, I yeah. had offers to go actually had offers to go to other schools, um, that would have been a full ride scholarship, but I chose to go to okay. Cal- Claremont because my wife is white. And I didn't want to, you know, we wanted to be in a space where we didn't have to deal with racism Mm. um, as much as we had dealt in the rest of our lives. And Los Angeles was an ideal fit for us um, in that regard. And um, and so, yeah, that's how I ended up out here uh, just because I needed, I I knew that, I knew prior to coming to seminary, I loved God with my heart. I Mm. need to fall in love with God with my mind. Mm. And I knew I needed space to do that. And I knew I got that space. I need I needed to leave. I need to, you know, um do like uh there's this, you know, you probably I don't know if you're familiar with the book of Richard Rohr. He has this book called Falling Upwards and he talks about Odysseus mm. and going on this journey. And he talks about you have to leave in terms and then and like you you have to leave to actually have this happen. And I read it and I was like, Yeah, this makes sense. Like you have to be in a space where things become difficult. And, and it forces you to grow. Um, right. And, and that's what I did. You know, I, I, I was able to grow because of that. Yeah, no, thanks. Thanks for uh, sharing that. And like uh, to that end, right? Like I've heard, and I'm sure you heard this joke, uh, you know, some people call seminaries cemetery, right? Because they go there and their faith dies. But I think that, you know, um, I think there is sometimes a death, right? There's a growing like you're alluding to, right? That happens a lot of times because, you know, to have that space, right? Like you're saying that opportunity that very few individuals do, like, because we have so much pop theology and, and, and uh, just like, you know, especially, um, you know, in, in certain communities, right? Uh, that, you know, to quite frankly, I think there we have this kind of crisis, right, in terms of, uh, <laughs> and, you know, people not wanting to be a part of like institutionalized or organized religious spaces, right, because of the pop theology, right, that exists in terms of, uh, you know, associating Christianity with hate or other faith traditions too, right, it, with, you know, very colonial uh, frameworks. Um, and so, like, what, was there a class, was there something in particular that like helped you know, um, you mentioned a book already, right? But like, uh, if you can draw a little bit more on that experience, because obviously you you went on to pursue a PhD too, right? Not just a, a MDiv, and I think you have what MA, MDiv, and and a I got PhD. To, got two, too many degrees, man. Too many degrees. <laughs> uh, you know what? What's what's so funny, Josh? I would say like seminary did not do as well a job as it should have done. Mm. Um, in this regard, uh, I came into seminary, like, I mean, I kind of skipped over a lot of stuff in my life, man. So like, so my mom has lupus and that's the autoimmune disease. And she got diagnosed when I was 14. 
Uh, and, you know, life is hard, man. Like, um, we were already poor. She, we didn't know what was going on. We didn't have good insurance. She was in the hospital for months on end. Um, mm. We were getting utilities turned off. Um, we didn't have, we, and, 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 and I was taking care of my, I'm the oldest of four. So I'm taking care of my brothers and sisters. So my dad is a janitor at elementary school working mm. in the evenings. And so I'm the other adult at home. Um, right. And this I was for years till, my, till we figured out what was going on with my mom and get her on a, uh, a medication regime or routine, I should say, that allowed her to be able to come home consistently. Before that, like, wow. you know, my dad, um, like when my mom and dad uh, were younger, my dad had a drug problem. And so he ended up having to go to rehab uh, for two years. Uh, and wow. so my mom was before my mom was working like two jobs, taking right. care of stuff. And I was taking care of my brother and sister then. And, um, mm. and so like, you know, and my, my aunt and had been through difficult times that I had witnessed with respect to domestic violence. My grandmother who has subsequently, you know, passed before I went to seminary, um, had a stroke and lost her ability to speak and walk well and, um, wow. so we just, you know, I didn't live through so much at a young age. I've been working, like right. I was working full time 40 hours a week when I was a senior in high school, man, like to help pay the right. bills, not like, right. you know, like to pay like light bills, you know what I'm saying? Like, like, right. and so, so, so when I got to seminary, right. So I give that as context to say, right. When right. people are like, I get to seminary, Josh, right. And look, I, I'm in, I, I, I remember being in systematic theology. And there's this white woman, don't know her name. And, you know, again, my wife is white, you know, got no problem with white people. But it's, this is important right. for the context. Right. And she says, you know, the problem I have with God is I just, like, struggle with the problem of evil. I don't know why evil exists. And this is my second semester in seminary. And this is my first time encountering this. Because, again, I don't, I'm not around any intellectuals. I never heard of this problem of evil because I grew up in a black community where we knew what evil was and it pretty much looked like her, right? Like we, we have been like, okay, this is our, yeah. you know, like white people tend to be causing the problems. Right. And so, <laughs> and so like she's articulating this, this problem that my, I have a hard time believing in God because of evil. Mm. And people start talking about this and I'm in the class with Philip Clayton, Dr. Clayton. And I'm like raising my head and I stand up. It's like, you know what? I have to be honest with you. I think this is a BS because <laughs> like, clearly you never talked to anybody that's been poor. I was like, because mm. evil exists because people do evil things. Right. I was like, it has nothing to do with anything else. I was like, and I literally said, I was like, white people have done evil things in this world mm. to my people. And this is when we, we can see how evil exists. Um, and, and I was like, that doesn't mean anything. That has nothing to do with God. That has everything right. to do with y'all. I, like, mm. I was like, why are you putting our God stuff that humans have done? And yeah. so... I un fundamentally under always understood these things as choices. I said this mm. to say, like, there wasn't anything in seminary that could happen. I was going to take away my belief in the love and goodness and compassion of God, because there have been multiple times in my life where I experience the divine intercede on my family's behalf and, and make a way out of no way. Right. Like yeah. I lived it. So I knew I was like, so whatever problem you have about, evil that's your problem you got to work out i know but i know it'd be true um right. and so and so for me that was 
that was powerful, but like I didn't get that in seminary, right? I got I brought that to seminary. And so right. now as as a seminary professor, when I teach theology, I teach intro to theology, which is essentially constructive theology. And I think that right. is so often what's missing with mm. seminaries. Is they you get right. to a school and they teach you how to deconstruct a lot of what you used to know right. and they don't help you like build it back build up. It up yeah and so what i do in my class that's what my their final paper is like the first half of semester is let's let's ask a lot of questions i didn't call it deconstruction i'm like let's let's wrestle with what <laughs> you used to believe or these other beliefs right now let's think about what it looks like to build up and develop a theology that's consistent with what you actually believe and and recognize that your beliefs shift and change over time Right. right. Like you're, what you believe now may be different in five or six years. It should be different. Like you Definitely. should grow. Right. That's just a exactly. part of what it, what it means to be a human. Right. But yeah. there are our fundamental um, aspects like your faith should remain steady, even if your beliefs grow. Right. Mm. And, and, and so I'm trying to give my students, I'm trying to equip them with the tools they need to discern and distill what is bad theology. Right. Mm. So that when they're building their new theologies, they say, oh, OK, I can not ask critical questions. It doesn't cause me to lose faith. It causes me to, as Anselm would say, seek understanding. Mm. Right. That is faith. Faith is seeking understanding, recognizing there's always more that God is always revealing God's self to us. Mm. And so um, I'm trying to do that in seminary. But I'll be honest, like I, I, I didn't get that. Like and 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 so right. I try to provide it. Um you know, so that my students will have the same problems I had. Yeah, no, thank you. Thank you for, uh, you know, sharing that experience and obviously trying to to be a solution, right, to this gap that we have oftentimes, right? Uh, You know, and it's similar in like, for example, communities of color, right? When you don't have teachers that are from the community, right, that understand the social realities, right? When, uh, so I really appreciate you, you know, holistically responding and like sharing a little bit about your story, right. And your family's experiences and like totally resonate with that, you know, too, or is like, I feel like seminary for me was oftentimes, um, you know, uh, there was a syllabus of things that were instructed to read, but then I had to almost create my own syllabus and like bring in voices and other social locations, right. That were not represented and uh, you know, um, eventually construct uh, a theology, you know, really what, what I believed based on, you know, um, you know, the, what I knew was true of the world, right. As opposed to kind of this, you know, very limited social location that's often represented, like you're alluding to, right. And, and, you know, higher education in general, but especially when it comes to religious, uh, you know, higher education, right. And, uh, you know, so grateful that we have people like yourself, right. Who are, uh, you know, in those positions now to teach and right to to show other other ways um, and other voices that oftentimes, you know, unfortunately, like majority of, you know, most uh, theological institutions are leaving out these voices that are so crucial and important. And um, to that end, you know, I uh, mentioned earlier, we met almost like a decade ago now, which is crazy to think about. But you were just like finishing, I think, your uh, Ph.D. dissertation. And it was really fascinating, you know, because I was going through this experience. Uh, actually, um, my partner, Gracia, and I were there together. We we're doing some like vocational discernment. And we were at a, this retreat center in the Bay Area. And you were a workshop presenter. And you talked about the intersections of 
soul food and and faith and food right and, and really was uh the first time that you really um you know having you know at that point been in seminary and really looked at like the theology of the eucharist and things like that um and i eventually ended up writing my capstone project uh in seminary um you know really around the theology of the eucharist but really kind of looking more so in the in the um the kind of contextualization right of my own community and it was really inspired by the work that you started doing like i i didn't know that was a possibility so want to thank you for the work you're doing and of course talk more about it but also uh yeah it was just uh really i even quoted you in in the you know uh in you know this is so funny man you never told me this before i'm like oh man (laughs) i mean it was it's crazy to think about how long ago that was though right like when you said that I, i remember you coming up to me and just how excited you were like to be like oh my gosh i hadn't thought about this like you had that on your face like that look on your face like, <laughs> i never thought i never thought about religion and food in this way so that's right. so awesome that that you ended up writing on it yes no thank you thank you again like um and so what we were talking about earlier right just to have like i think uh, i think part of my excitement was to have somebody like i could relate to right like yourself you know which again you know thank you for the work you do not only pastoring but also teaching right in seminary i think it is so so crucial to have uh you know more people like you more people like us right to to offer different uh experiences and perspectives but um you know definitely want to uh if you wouldn't mind sharing a little bit more uh what eventually became a book right uh that came out in 2021 through university of illinois press the spirit of soul food race faith and food justice uh again congratulations on this wonderful book and like for those who haven't had a chance to read it yet could you give us a like an overview of what you what you're talking about in this beautiful book yeah so i um went into seminary very interested on about race and and mm. um and not really not knowing exactly what i wanted to do beyond that like broadly speaking i know i wanted to do something to do with like what we call racial reconciliation or anti-racism mm. training i don't you know i couldn't articulate it in that way but i've always been interested in like identity and the way we construct identity mm. um i decided to talk about food because of a trip i took um well, i should say multiple reasons but what triggered the idea was I was driving from LA to San Francisco for a conference. And in that drive, if you've ever driven it, you go along the five and you just see like these fields and workers and what looks like the mm. just worst working conditions. And right. Josh, it reminded me. So we would grow up and we would drive from Mississippi, we would drive from Michigan to Mississippi. And my grandpa's an introverted person, but this is the time he would start talking about like his life growing up when we were on the drive when we were down there growing up picking cotton and picking all kinds of stuff mm. and working in the fields. Um, and I could just, I connected with those workers, even though I didn't right. know them. I was like, man, this is the same stuff my grandpa been doing. And like, and when he right. talks about it, it sounds, it was terrible and it was racist. Right. And I right. saw these workers doing it and I was like, this is terrible. This is racist. Hmm. How are we like, what's a theological response to this? That's all I was thinking. I was like, there must wow. be a way for me as a person of faith to, to do something about this. Right. Right. Um, And the first thing I thought about what I could do at the time was how should I change the way I eat? Um, 
in light of what's happening. And so really that's the central premise of the book is how can I eat in a way that's in alignment with my values, right? Mm-hmm. One of my values is like liberation and justice and compassion, which I think a lot of people of faith would agree those are some values they have. What does it right. mean for you to eat in a way that actually is consistent with those values, right? And mm-hmm. so to do that, I had to like disentangle the food system and talk about the structural racism in the food system talk about mm. the ways in which christian like christianity has enabled us to be complicit in in that in the way we think about the environment because of the hierarchy we have about where humans are relative to other creatures um and and how ultimately when we get to what we we're talking about what it means to be human it's often rooted in a projection of whiteness you know mm. um when we think about like when in in our theological anthropologies within Christianity, when we're talking about Jesus, you see images of Jesus or God, it's white men, right? Um, (laughs) And the way we think and discuss and talk about Jesus as a person is often upholding these Eurocentric norms. Mm. And what that has led to is a dehumanization of people who aren't white or people who don't perform whiteness. Um, and so I think that's been part of the reason why, and a disconnecting it, that's also led to a disconnecting from non-human nature as something we can control and objectify, um, mm. because that's a part of white body supremacy. Right. And so, exactly. so I outline all this stuff in the book. So I'm giving you like a Cliff's notes version of how I outlined it on the book because it was a right. journey and it sounds all, I can make it sound academic, but I would tell you that it's very conversational, you know, I, I, it, that it, it's, um, rooted in, I tell my own story right. of, what happened to my diet, you know, I've become a vegan mm-hmm. as a consequence of doing this, um, not mm-hmm. for the animals, you know what I mean? I think most people I meet are vegans. They're like, Oh, I love the, and I, I love animals. Don't get me wrong. Animals are great. Don't, don't come <laughs> at me with the, uh, anti-animal, uh, angle. I love animals. It's just, for me, it was much more about the way the industry of animal agriculture and agriculture as such harms people of color. And I didn't mm-hmm. want to be complicit in harming, my community. And honestly, this is a community that predominantly now looks more like you, right? I mean, this mm-hmm. is mostly Latinx folks now and immigrant, right. yeah. African immigrants, mostly in right. these places. And and if we are going to be people of faith who side with the oppressed, right? Mm-hmm. This right. is among the most oppressed groups in America. Not only farm workers, but actual farmers. Right. Um, I write in the book, like, farmers always rank in the last 50 years, they've ranked in the top three of professions that commit suicide. Mm. It is farmers. It's some order of farmers, dentists, and veterinarians. It's been like that actually wow. for the last 30 years. But they, they those wow. three change. Because farming is such thin margins, and, mm. and so much of the money that we spend in farming goes to large corporations and not actual right. farmers. They're right. always living check to check, trying to make ends meet. Right. And and so this isn't it isn't just about like black people or Latinx folks. It's about like people in our food system who are just right. I mean, if, if if something happens to them, like I can't really grow no no real food, you know what I'm saying? Like <laughs> yeah. like, like you yeah. know, we saw this in the pandemic, right? When the supply exactly. chain gets messed up, people go hungry. And exactly. so we need to take this seriously as people of faith and think critically about how our faith should shape what it is we eat and how we think about our food system. So mm. that's what, that's what the book is an invitation to do. Yeah, no, thank you so much for that, that wonderful overview. And again, for putting this together, you know, and it, it's, I think it's so 
practical too and accessible too, right? Like that, you know, like you said, you can make it sound very academic or, you know, but it, at the end of the day, the f- there's no humanity without food, right? There is no life without food. And so it's so, so grounding and it's, and it's, I love how you intersect, you know, uh, spirituality into it, right? And theology, because it, it is a, a theological question, like you're asking, right? Like how to, to respond to this. And I think uh, oftentimes, you know, um, that's, that is the question, right? Like, where is God? Where is the divine in these, uh, places of hurt in these places of pain, like you're talking about, you know, at a, you know, driving in, in what a lot of people don't realize uh, is that that drive right from LA to San Francisco, the central Valley is where the majority of our foods produced in the whole country, right? Like the, the, that don't, doesn't come from other countries, right? Uh, that's where the majority. And so there's, there's definitely, I mean, uh, just a plethora of farms and ag agricultural spaces, um, in California here. And, you know, again, I appreciate how you, you're bringing it home, uh, not only in, in this part of the country, but, um, how you also intersect it with your own, you know, uh, you know, family and ancestral, uh, you know, uh, background, right. In terms of, you know, talking about soul food. And if you wouldn't mind sharing a little bit more about, you know, how, how, you know, this has intersects, right. With the, you know, you mentioned, uh, uh, racial justice or how, how is, how do you talk about soul food and its intersection with black history? Right. And in the ways in which, you know, it, it serves as an expression of identity and connection to ancestors, you know, and, and ancestral homelands. Yeah. So a big part of my struggle with when I answered that question in terms of, okay, how can I eat in a way that's in alignment with my values? One answer was obvious is I needed to stop eating animals because factory farms are Mm. just the worst in terms of pollution and racism. (laughs) Like that's just like just the worst. Like um, Mm. they are some of the most polluting industries and they're always populated around communities of color because this is where it's like, you know, NIMBYism, like not in my backyard. So they're always in spaces where it's predominantly black, Latinx and indigenous Mm. Um, inside the factories there's a racial caste and racial hierarchy where black mm. people and people of color in general have the worst jobs and white people are the ones who have the executive level positions. Um, <laughs> and um, not to mention the water that we spend on the factory farms, the uh, um, antibiotics and other like vital medicines that humans actually need that we have to use on them. So mm. they don't have other zoonotic diseases. Um, like there's just all these ways in which you can look at the, industrial animal agriculture as particularly bad for black people. And right. so um, I was like, okay, that means I need to stop eating meat. And in so doing, how can I maintain a sense of identity as a black man and not eat stuff I grew up eating, you know? Mm. And so much, and I was already, so I'm already in California. I already left Michigan, which people in my family is like, I might as well move to Mars. Like going to California <laughs> for Michigan is like going to another planet. Um <laughs> I already started growing my dreadlocks at this point. So I already got locks. And so my family's already like, hey, I don't know, like something's going on. And then, I, <laughs> and, then and then when I'm like, okay, I'm going to be a vegetarian. That's what I did at the time. I mean, yeah. for them, it was just like, it was a lot. Um, and sure. so I needed to be, a, I need, they felt like I was, um, not so much they were losing me, but I was, I was not, 
connecting to them in the same ways. Like they were concerned about my ability to be who I am in the midst of everything I was learning. And so mm. for me, I needed to figure out a way to eat in a, in a way that, that helped me feel like me, you know, like, so yeah. I had to, so part of my um, pursuit was to take the things that I grew up eating. Um, and I guess two things, it was first to take things I grew up eating and find a way to make them healthy and mm. have them still taste like home. And so for me, it's like reinventing all these recipes. Uh, and then the secondly was to do research on like African diasporic food ways, because mm. what I came to realize is so much of what we've been taught about what we eat is a part of like um, capitalism, basically right. <laughs> like capitalism exactly. shapes so much of how people that look like you and I, like, you know, young people of color um, mm. are taught to eat because we have so much more exposure to media than our parents did. Mm. Um and so, like, my grandpa, I talked to him about what he ate growing up. He ate predominantly vegetarian because they couldn't afford to have meat, right? Mm. And that's what he ate, and they thought it was fine. Um, he doesn't really eat that much meat anymore, like, barely any at all. Enough that, because his doctor says he has to, because he's 90. Um, right. But, like, not much. Uh, and what I realized was um, our indigenous, like, indigenous African diets were predominantly leafy greens, soupy mm. stews, was supplemented with meat hmm. and 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 that's a, we grew up eating beans and rice right. uh gumbo uh like dirty rice hop and check hmm. it's basically what we ate that's what we right. <laughs> but but often we had way too much meat in it relative to what they would have had back in the day or what they ate hmm. in west africa and right. so um it was a way in which for me to kind of reclaim an identity not to say okay this is exactly what our west african ancestors ate but to say that me eating like this is consistent with my identity as a black person right like i can mm. tie it back to a past that is real and tangible that still eats that way and mm. we could also use this to heal from agriculture because so much of my community because we dealt with so much forced agriculture people didn't want to have anything to do with like farming or growing any kind of food Right. Um, which is like totally legitimate, right? Like, right. um, and, and so there's a trauma there we had to heal from. And so I wanted to help people understand that the reason we were enslaved is because of our agricultural capabilities. Like we were hmm. really good farmers. We knew how to grow food that Europeans struggled to grow, which is why they enslaved us. And I talk about this in the book. And, mm -hmm. um, and so, and so slavery is a part of our ag agriculture history, but not the part, right? It's a right. part of our history, but it's not the defining part. And so we have, we have to process through that and heal from that. And, and so that's what I try to do to help us connect to that longer history of black culinary and agricultural practices. Yeah. Thank you so much for, for, you know, just giving that again, a synopsis, you know, of, of the connection, right. The intersection uh, between your own ancestors and, you know, the, the food, injustice system that we that we experience you know through modern you know industrial ways of you know uh growing food right that is is such a i mean you know you alluded to it too during the pandemic right where we really kind of i think for the first time uh, some of us you know paused and actually saw like whoa like uh there's people behind the scenes right that oftentimes are invisible people that are producing uh you know the the things that we go to the grocery store you know that we take for granted right to to get food um regardless of what kind of food it is right uh and um you know i think 
you know, there, there's just so much here, like, um, you know, that I want to continue to ask you about, because, you know, I, again, you were like really one of the first people to kind of make these connections in my mind around how this is not only just a, you know, a social economic issue uh, or, you know, cultural, but also very much a theological one too. And um, like, I remember in some of your other works reading, uh, you know, talking about, uh, just, you know, um, the fact that some people are, uh, you know, because of economics, right. And, and other injustices, uh, they're going to shop at the 99 cent store. Like there's an article you wrote that, um, you know, just really, uh, you know, is reminded as you we were sharing now, like how, how, you know, how do we, uh, as individuals, I guess, you know, address something that is so large, would you touch on that, like, uh, in terms of, you know, because, you know, it, it, it kind of feels like there's, you know, it, there's powerlessness, right? It can feel, I should say, like there's powerlessness in this these systems that feel so large, like, um, and I know you touch on it in your book, but would you mind, uh, you know, sharing how maybe how you've experienced that or you've seen other communities, you know, address these uh, injustices around food and, uh, you know, colonization, right? Yeah, so I guess what I say is I'll, I'll two parts. I'll talk about what I mean by decolonization and talk about like the three um, kind of like theological like practices basically that I outline in, in the conclusion of the book um, that kind of I think help describe a little bit more about what it looks like in practice. And so essentially I'm talking about decolonization. Like I see decolonization as like both identifying a, like colonial thinking and then dismantling colonial thinking and what i mean by colonial thinking is like when we think about colonization you're thinking about believing that life should be at the service of institutions so mm -hmm. right think about the way we think about capitalism or we think about our jobs or these other things our lives are at the service of these organizations and a decolonial framework asks and recognizes that these institutions should be at the service of life, mm, right? That right. like um, they should help us actually flourish rather than the other way around. Um, and that's a simplified version of what I write in a book, but it's a helpful way. I think of just when you're asking, say, what does it mean to decolonize as to colonialism is so tied up with um, capitalism and economics it's right. often tied with the production and consumption of goods rather than what does it mean to have people have a higher standard of baseline living so that we all might flourish. Um, and so when I'm trying to think about it with respect to food, but just in general, I talk up first thinking about what sources of knowledge that we use that have shaped our certain in our worldview, right? Like, so questioning our sources of knowledge to expand them to other sources of knowledge that aren't, um, Eurocentric or androcentric, um, mm. you know, and then to like examine and analyze um, the answers that we find, like with respect to food, I talk about like, you know, what do we discover when we analyze our food system, um, you know, from the, our personal and communal experience. And then I think we move to the theological, this is where we get to the anthropology section. Mm. And I think it's important for us to ask ourselves, who do we want to be, right? As people of faith, like who are we called to be um, and then in light of that, we answer, what are we called to do? And so it really kind of moves right. from like, you know, these movements, I believe, helps us um, get at and create a framework, what I was trying to do, of describing um, what 
what I call soulful eating, justice for food workers and caring for the earth, those three theological practices. Mm. Soulful eating at its core is like, I borrow heavily from Bell Hooks and I call it like culinary consciousness raising. Mm. Like, so I'm arguing for what I describe as black veganism, but I don't need to spend a ton of time talking about that. Essentially what I mean is I recognize that everybody can be vegan. So I ask for an agent specific and context specific veganism, meaning mm. that we need to create the space and system for people to actually eat in ways that are compassionate and that care for creation. Mm. That's broadly space, broadly simple, broadly speaking, I should say. And, and do we do this by thinking when we're eating, right? So bell hooks talks about mm. consciousness raising groups in her book. Feminism is for everybody. And so I try to take that with just a culinary consciousness raising, like how do we eat in ways where we think and we recognize where our food comes from, who's making it, who's suffering, who's benefiting, like how do we actually have these kinds of conversations before we buy the food and while we're eating, right? Mm -hmm. Such that we begin to change. Um, and, and, and if churches, if just churches did that, right? If your church yeah. organization said, you know what, we commit this year to, to buy foods that are fair trade foods that are, if you're going to eat meat, stuff that comes from not factory farms, stuff that comes from actual farm where people are actually getting paid a just wage. And if you say, well, if we can't right. do that, then we're going to be default veg. Like if you make this commitment, right? Like yeah. that's what I mean by soulful eating, right? Like right. taking and using the resources you have to do better because you know better, you know, <laughs> like, exactly. like you know better. So then you need to do better. Um, yeah. And also begin to develop the practice of cooking. I think one of the most important things that we have as people of color is that we are um, a people of stories and mm. these stories is where we tell and how, it's how it's how our ancestors are not only called into remembrance, but how we allow ourselves to stay connected to them and pass on those, those stories to our children. Um, mm. And so, and so remembering and recalling this practice of cooking, I think is crucial to soulful eating as well. And so, so that's what I mean by soulful eating. Justice for food workers is much more of the tangible, practical thing that I was talking about in terms of like changing the ways in which you procure food personally and especially religious organizations, right? Yeah. Um, so if your church, I mean, people have potlucks and stuff all the time, like be eat in a way that's in alignment with your values. If your church mission statement is about the love of Jesus and talking about love and earth, you know, mm. that you need to buy food that reflects your mission statement, <laughs> you know? And so like, this is what it is. And so, yeah. uh, and, and, and so it's, it's, it's buying, it's going to buying stuff from a CSA, going to farmer's markets, um, going to co-ops. Uh, and these are all things I do. Right. So I'm not telling you anything I do like this shirt. Right. I love this shirt. This is a shirt. Um, that we got from a, uh, what do you call it? Um, thrift store, you know, like yeah. it's just trying to recognize that we have to, um, change our patterns of consumerism because so much of our consumerism is rooted in, um, honestly, it's, it, it, it's, it's rooted in anti-ecological principles. Um, mm -hmm. and so, so changing how we buy food so that we can take seriously our responsibility to increase the minimum wage and protect and help farm workers and, and to move towards something called food sovereignty so that each mm -hmm. community can actually have a grocery store and each community can have free school food, um, and, and, and work with, organizations like the LA food policy council of you in LA. Um, yeah. and again, these are things I don't say everybody has to do all this stuff, but I give people lots of options in the book. I was like, here's a, some stuff you can do. And the last thing I want to say right. is, um, turning, I talk, I call it as like 
caring for the earth, but really I'm talking about turning church land into farmland, right? Mm. So how can we, like where I grew up in Michigan, we had a whole just bunch of land next to our church. We weren't using it for anything, right. just nothing. And not only could we have been growing food there to feed our community, we could have been growing food there to sell. We could be giving people jobs right. to right. grow food, to sell, right? Yeah. We could have been investing in our community to transform them, not only from a health and wellness perspective, but literally creating jobs like what the conservatives be talking about <laughs> like we could actually be job <laughs> creators you know yeah, and so yeah um like how might we use resources that we have in ways that can lead to that mm. transformation right i think that's something that's crucial if you don't have land like that organizations like the black church food security network have showed us that you can partner with other churches and connect with farmers and have like an internal farmer's market in your own church and mm. do it in a way that you don't, you know, where the farmer can make some more money because you're not charging them a bunch of overhead because you're a nonprofit right. and that's what right. you're supposed to do. And <laughs> and your people can actually eat good food that's cheaper than they can get at a grocery store. And so mm. it, it's really trying to recognize there are multiple ways for us to embody this this um the but vision of beloved community, basically, as I try to draw draw out. And so yes. so that's kind of the principles that I that I lay out and uh I articulate that in greater detail in the book but that's that's the rough you know the rough version but it's it's doable josh that's the thing it's like this yep. isn't it can feel overwhelming but i'm like it's really not it's like you just do a couple of things and you're doing right. something good and it can snowball and, and lead to larger systemic change absolutely yeah and i think um you know going touching on that last point like uh uh that the local church right we have like obviously we are in a food system we're in a uh you know some might even call it a watershed right that is like you know obviously in our geopolitical imaginations like we divide uh land by you know uh, cities or states or countries or you know these borders right but nature actually has uh systems too that in which you know it uh, so we're um you know uh you know and it's all around like water right or or food and um you know i think uh you know, every church is in one of these spaces, right? And and I, I think it really kind of goes into the holistic nature of spirituality, right? In your work, really, really highlights that in terms of like you know our our spirituality. Like you mentioned it earlier, right? About how um, you know in your experience in seminary, uh, you know, of like uh, you know evil, right? And, uh, you know, sometimes our, our spirituality in the Christian tradition could be like this escapism, right? Where it's not grounded in reality. It's not grounded in in the local context, um, right? And, uh, you know, like, especially for those of us who got, uh, you know, or part of the evangelical world, right? Whereas like spirituality was all about the afterlife, you know, it was like all about this like future, um, you know, wanting to spend eternity instead of in hell and in heaven. Right. Um, and, uh, the spirituality that I think the gospel really presents is one that is very much grounded incarnational, right. Especially as we're in this Advent season, uh, so much so like where our, our theology teaches that, uh, our God incarnated into this world, into this local context, right. Into these, these, uh, systems, right. Um, and the local church, like you're saying, I think has the power to really engage ourselves to being our incarnational. Right. And I think through, you know, um, you know, what you call soulful eating is such a great example, right. Of how we could, you know, be, build that beloved community, 
obviously with humans, but with other creation too, right? Not just, uh, <laughs> you know, um, but, but very much so like there are humans that are suffering and, you know, if we're going to be on the side of the oppressive, we're going to be uh, in solidarity, right? Like it does come down to feeding, right? And that's why, like, it, it so struck me in that article when you're talking about like, dude, there's people that are shopping for groceries at the 99 cents or like my family's done that before. Right. And, um, it was just, I, again, it was like, in a way I felt like seeing, uh, through that, but also I think it's so important where, um, we're thinking about, uh, you know, feeding people, right. How we can, uh, use our spaces, use our resources, um, you know, to, uh, not only, um, obviously put food on people's table and, you know, in their bellies, but also, um, you know, think about how we could also take care of the workers, you know, take care of the the earth itself. Right. And use our spaces, you know, like, you know, again, every faith community has a space. Right. Um, for the most part, that can be used to also, um, you know, produce, uh, you know, like I said, jobs and food and, and really transformation. And again, uh, one one of your quotes that I, it stuck with me, uh, you know, that we can transform uh, you know, the world, like one plate at a time, right? Like food could be this source that can really bring about transformation. Um, even if it, even if it's something that we oftentimes through capitalism, through consumerism, we don't even think, right. We don't think, we don't associate like, you know, um, and, and then going back to like spirituality, I think that word Eucharist is, is about gratitude, kind of what we were talking about earlier. Right. And so it is this reflective, you know, um, space that, I think, uh, again, food is so, so central. And so, again, I want to honor you and just, you know, acknowledge, uh, you know, the work that you put into this that, you know, like you said, you're not only writing about, but you're embodying in, in your own context. And, um, you know, just so thank you, you know, Reverend Dr. Carter for the work that you do and, uh, you know, for producing uh, this wonderful gift, the spirit of soul food, uh, you know, highly recommend um, the book and, uh, you know, we'd like to just pause there. If there's anything else that you'd like to talk about the book or some of the, your, uh, you know, forthcoming, uh, uh, work that you, you are writing. Yeah, actually, you know what, let me, man, this is what's messed up. I was like trying to remember like, what's the name of this article I just published? This is what happens when you write probably <laughs> when too you, much. You put I'm in like, the work, yeah. I know. I'm like, what is the name of that? It's coming out on. Oh man, it's on animals and religion. Um, that's the name of the edited volume. Oh, here it is. Okay. Right here. Uh, cancel. Um, it is called. Let me get the title. There we go. It's called Race, Animals, and a New Vision of the Beloved Community. Um, and what I love about this, just to give a teaser, is I start this chapter by talking about the similarities between the animal rights movement and the black lives matter movement. And I have mm. these pictures of the, of Trump. I don't know if you remember before president Trump was going to um, go in front of that church and has that picture he's holding the Bible. And it's mm -hmm. that crazy. And he, they, they like had like tear gas clear the way. So a picture of that. Mm. And I have a picture sure. of these, these white anti-maskers in Michigan. So it's my home state like just going crazy in front of police and the police are just sitting there taking it. And wow. I juxtapose these messages in terms of the way we think about who gets treated like and seen like an animal and what does mm. it mean for us to take that seriously. Right. So that's a chapter that's coming out that I'm excited about. Um, the other thing I would just say is not, if people are interested in find out more about my work, they can, uh, you know, my website is, uh, www 
www.drchristophercarter.com, I think. Uh, and yeah, we'll be I'll, sure to put it in the show notes. For yeah, sure. but that's, yeah, and and I think lastly, um, you know, we have a uh, progressive theology podcast um, at the loft now that I'm actually really excited about. That we actually are finishing up our uh, series on white Christian nationalism next week. Um, that's been really, really good. Um, so yeah, man, just, you know, I'm kind of a little bit everywhere. Uh, so, you know, uh, check out some of that stuff and, um, you know, anybody got any questions, they can feel free to shout, shout me out. But, um, I want to thank you for having me. Um, it's crazy to see how much like you've grown, you know, as a person, as a scholar. Uh, and I'm like really proud of what I see you doing. And you Thank and your you. partner both are doing some amazing stuff, man. So it's it's exciting, man. It really, really is to think back to that first time we met so long ago uh, to, to where we are now, man. You know, it's kind of, you know, won't he do it? That's what they say in my tradition. Won't he do it? So. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thank you. No, that means a lot coming from you. And again, you know, you've been somebody I've looked up to for many years. So, you know, it's uh, such a gift to, you know, uh, now uh, have you because you were in San Diego, right? Uh, a few years back, but now you're here and, you know, uh, the the loft and Westwood churches are partner in the ministry we're doing too in Echo Park. And so it's great to be in solidarity. And thank you for all the work you continue to do. And um, I just kind of quick hitters as we conclude here, uh, want to ask you some final questions, you know, uh, again, you know, as you alluded to already of holding these, this dual vocation, right, as a pastor and professor, you know, how do you individually and collectively work about for holistic spirituality? I think that's probably one of the most challenging things you have as a scholar activist pastor Mm -hmm is mm-hmm. to take the time to tend to yourself. And mm-hmm. so two things. Um, one, I go to therapy. <laughs> and that has yes. been, and I'm very open about it, it's been very helpful. I have an amazing, um, I, I, I uh, have an amazing therapist. Um, she utilizes uh, internal family systems approach, which mm-hmm. I highly recommend. It's very, um, I think it's in alignment with so much of, the contemplative practices we find in the tradition of Christianity, which is the Mm -hmm. other thing I was going to talk about is this book Mm -hmm. called practicing compassion, um, Mm -hmm. by Frank Rogers. Um, it has been like the subtitle is the way of Jesus, um, or Mm -hmm. is compassion in practice, the way of Jesus. And that book has been so helpful for me in terms of developing practices that allow me to heal and to work through what's going on internally and to, to find a space to cultivate compassion, not only for myself, but for others for transformation, right? Not just like the, you know, benign thoughts and prayers, right. But actual compassion that leads to transforming communities. Like we see Jesus doing the gospels. Mm-hmm. And so for me, holistic spirituality starts with learning to actually love yourself mm-hmm. such that you can actually then love others and not yes. see the, where you look at the, <laughs> you see the speck in their eye and not focus on the, you know, and, and recognize you have a log in yours, right? Like, you know, right, it's like exactly. doing the internal work. It's like you do the U-turn to say what's going on with yeah. me, what allows you to engage others in a more authentic way. Absolutely. Absolutely. And uh, no, that's so, that's so uh, such words of wisdom there, you know, and I, I appreciate you sharing that such a believer in, and um, 
you know, that's actually one thing that we hope of the podcast is that, you know, we do cultivate those practices of self-compassion too, right? Because I totally wholeheartedly believe that unless we do do that kind of internal, you know, because oftentimes we see that even in faith spaces, you know, um, where it's like people transforming the world. But, you know, there's always that, um, I think, that tension of the Mary and Martha, you know, ways of, you know, doing the work, but also sitting at the feet of Jesus, right? And like being in transform internally and also um, just appreciate you you sharing that. Um, And also just want to ask, like, you know, if there's any, again, because why why we put together this project was to, you know, cultivate and, you know, share people's personal journeys. And a lot of us, uh, we struggle, right? Like, you know, sometimes we might be in uh, positions as pastors or professors or other, you know, but, um, you know, we don't realize those internal struggles and just want to share uh, have you shared if there has ever been any time that you struggle with your faith or, you know, um, evolved, you know, in your faith? You kind of mentioned that a little bit, but just any last stories that you would like to share as we close out here? Yeah, you know, I think the most relevant story, there has been times that once or I can't share unless, share unless I have permission, which I didn't ask for, so I'm not going to share, but... Another story that I want to share that's been helpful for me in expanding my notion of community was um, actually when my first dog died. And mm. I know that sounds, for some people, you're like, oh, your dog, whatever. But um, at this time, I was just a postdoc in San Diego. And I was living by myself because my wife was finishing veterinary school up here. Mm. And um, we knew our dog had cancer and I've been taking him to get treatments and stuff like that. And... Um, mm. But I was getting frustrated with the amount of time I was having to spend taking care of him with treatments and things like that um, because it was taking away time I felt like I needed to be doing to prove myself to this organization to get this job, uh, you know, mm. to be a tenured professor rather than postdoc. And um, and my dog had been there for me through so much strife and through mm. marital struggles, through family struggles, through depression and just mm-hmm. held me and supported me. And yeah. um, and so when it came time to say goodbye and when it got to the point where we needed to, um, you know, take him for euthanasia, um, I felt such deep guilt, deep guilt, because I did not feel like I treated him with the same level of love that he treated me in the moment of his need. Um, and Josh, I'm telling you, man, I was messed up. I was messed up because, uh, I felt shame and guilt and, and I also felt embarrassed because I didn't want to tell my peers at my university that I'm all sad and depressed and feel this stuff because my dog died. And this feels so like weird. And, um, and what I realized, and so this is, this is, it took me years to really work through this. And I, so the, I wrote this chapter called prophetic Labrador, um, mm. which is on my website, which you can find about it's, it's a eulogy to Samson and, yeah. and I write how his death and me learning to work through my grief helped me expand my notion of community beyond humans. Help me yeah. understand that, that he was a part of my community in a way that mm. was transformative, that allowed me to, to feel healed and whole at times in my life where I've, where I didn't necessarily feel that way. 
Um, and, and, and so I think for me, um, that's a, a, a deeply pivotal point in my spirituality in as much as it has continued to shape my thinking about who gets to, to make sure that all people are seen and that we shouldn't Mm -hmm. have communities that are like, I believe in hierarchy. I mean, I'm a dad. So if you believe if you're a parent and you actually want to be a good parent, you got to believe that somebody has some power. Um, But it doesn't, it should be oppressive hierarchy, right? It doesn't need to be oppressive. Right. And I think that's what I learned more than anything from Samson um, Mm. was what does it mean to just love and to love in a way that expands the notion of community that doesn't require this kind of oppressive hierarchy, but to see someone as contributing to your flourishing and well-being. Um, and I, I apply it to all this other stuff in light of it. Like his death, just, I, I use, I talk about, I use him and connect it with Cone and do some other stuff. It's, it's, wow. it's actually the chapter is so funny. It's the chapter I get emailed about the most because when we, we, we have such terrible theologies of death with our companion animals. Like, right. so what happens is somebody's animal dies they're Googling stuff about what to, and they find this article, randomly wow. find this article. And I get these emails, people are just like, and I can tell they're in tears, like writing it about how this thing was so helpful for them <laughs> working through there. And it, and it's, and so in this sense, this is his story. It's his story that lives on. It's how he's alive in me mm-hmm. is by me talking about the transformation that he had on me. So, so thank you for letting me share that story, man. Cause that, um, yeah. I don't know. It's, it definitely, um, it's, it's really important for me. It's really important to me. Thank you. Thank you. Samson presente, as we say, uh, you know, and I, I really appreciate you sharing that. You know, uh, you almost had me in tears, too, just thinking about it. So I can't wait to check it out. And of course, we'll, we'll link it up in the show notes, too, so others can as well. And again, as we conclude here, uh, we ask this question to everybody on the podcast, but it's so appropriate, you know, given everything we've been talking about today. Uh, you know, if you could have five dinner guests, you know, either who are president of this world, who have passed on. Uh, who would you like to share a meal with and why? Okay, so it would be, um, you know, Martin Luther King would be mm. one, just because he's Martin Luther King and just genius. And that Howard Thurman, same thing. Like two mm. people just straight up, like same thing straight up. Like that's who I want to. Uh, wow. Barack Obama, because mm. is Barack Obama. Uh, <laughs> I'm like, you know, I, you know so minor, <laughs> minor, like, it says like, these are like very, very obvious, you know, people. Um, yeah, I think, um, the other person would be Oprah because I'm just mm. always fascinated with like who she is and like what she's been able to do and how she's been able to work through and overcome everything she's been able to overcome, mm. um, in her life. Um, and the last one is actually Dorothy Day. Um, mm. because like Dorothy Day is an anarchist and a, and a, and a an amazing Catholic and right. like just holds these things in tension. Just like Dorothy Day was walking the walk, man. Like she's walking the walk. Definitely. And so I've always been fascinated and love reading her work. Um, and mm. have always been inspired by it. This is a hard question for me. Like I had to name the first three were just like, these are my three. Yes. And then to narrow down the next two was tricky because yes. I could have said probably 10 other people, but, sure. um, you know, I, I've always been, uh, an Oprah fan. I'm like a weird, you know, I don't be talking about it too much, but yeah, I've just always been impressed by her work and would love to learn from her. It was close to her and Ava DuVernay, to be honest, but you know, we're with Oprah. Love it. No, that would be a beautiful, <laughs> beautiful meal for sure. And 
I can see Oprah kind of, you know, facilitating conversation. Exactly. I know. I don't want to do anything. Like, she would just be kind of guiding everything around. It'd be like one big super soul. It's like what you call it, super soul Sunday. It'd just be one yes. big meal. It'd be awesome. Exactly. No, I love it. Love it. Well, thank you so much again. And, uh, you know, as we're still kind of starting this uh, podcast, uh, we're asking people if you have any recommendations, you know, uh, for being a guest on the podcast. Oh, man. Uh, <laughs> if you're going to have a guest on this podcast, who would I think you should have on? Probably Isabel Harada, who okay. is this Filipina young woman who's running for city council. And she okay. is a bad bad woman in all the good ways man like she is awesome she was able to come to the loft and unfortunately i wasn't able to be there but i've met her a few other times and she's doing some real work in the community and i mean la city council as you will know has some problematic people and so uh i hope like i can't endorse candidates because of <laughs> because right. of my job but let's right. just say i would not be sad if she won i'll just say that <laughs> right right no, thank you. We'd love to to connect and have her on the show. So thanks for the recommendation. And last question uh, is, how would you define refuge? For me, refuge is creating a... It's, it's what, what I try to... How I see it is it's creating a space where you can feel like you belong, but you don't have to fit in, right? Mm. Um, and And that's so much of what I've tried to create at the loft community is a refuge for people who are like theologically mm. feel like they don't fit in anywhere. And so, but to feel safe, to feel like you can be yes. yourself and be seen and mm. be heard and not dehumanized and that it's okay that you we all don't agree. Right? right. But you know, that you belong, right? Mm. Like you don't have to, that's what I mean. Like when you fit into a place, you're always like, okay, I have to believe all these things and fit all these stereotypes or whatever. Um, but mm. that's not real humans it's not how people are um you should be able to be in a space and be yourself and know that in the midst of that we can still hold you in sacred love and compassion because you belong and so mm. for me that's what i think of refuge man you know it's um a space where you can belong and have to fit in and feel safe and seen and heard mm. yeah thank you thank you for that beautiful uh, description and i can see it i can feel it and thank you for also embodying it you know in the loft space and in the other work you do and uh, yeah, just thank you for sharing your story today, Reverend Dr. Carter. It's such a gift. And, you know, uh, just look forward to keeping in touch. Of course, we will put uh, all the information you shared in the show notes so that others can keep in touch with you as well. And, you know, as we say in Spanish, adelante, onward, you know, and uh, all the blessings, all the love and blessings. Thanks, Josh, man. I'll talk to you soon. Sounds good. Peace. <laughs>